Welcome everyone, I'm Daniel Joseph and you're on the Corner Fringe. Thank you for joining me today. We get to look at the last and final horseman of the apocalypse. Now, that being said, uh, just a quick disclaimer. This particular teaching I have stripped down quite a bit. There's a, there's a lot of there's a lot of things I was going to originally cover that I that I drew back on and I pulled out. And so this is a very, very stripped down version of this message. And I mention this because I want you to be looking for the coming videos. I am going to do some follow-up videos that are going to relate to the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse as a whole. And we're going to be covering some more current events. And there's some things that I want to bring to the table that I have not yet brought such as the mark of the beast. And so I mention this because I want to make sure that you understand that there's going to be, uh, Lord willing, there will be some follow-up videos uh, to today's message. And uh, with that, let's break into this. Revelation 6-7, this is what we read. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard a voice of the fourth living creature say, Come and see, verse 8. So I looked, and behold, a pale horse and in the greek this is chloros and it means more than just pale it refers to a pale green and i think you'll understand why it bears this color as we continue and the name of him who sat on it was death in the greek thanatos it's interesting this is the only rider of the four horsemen that is given a name why is this horseman given a name? Because it tells us how he is going to impact the world. You think of Jesus when he came. His parents were instructed to name him Yeshua because he is going to save the world. So Yeshua means salvation. See, that his name indicated how he would impact the world. So too, Thanatos tells us how this rider is going to impact the world. He is going to impact the world with death. Now, as we continue, we're going to discover he is not alone. Look at this. He has a companion, and Hades followed with him. Now, to help us truly appreciate what's being conveyed here, I, I want to talk about the Greek word Hades or Hades. What you'll find, it's used 10 times in the New Testament. What you'll find is oftentimes it's translated as hell. And it's somewhat of a misnomer. And, and I say that because uh, when we think about hell as believers, or even unbelievers, when you think about hell, you think of a, a fiery place of judgment, a fiery place of torment right? This is what typically comes to our minds. Well, there's a Greek word for that that describes exactly that. It's called Gehenna. Jesus, Yeshua, uses this term often to describe hell as we understand it today. Uh, Matthew 10, 28, do not fear him who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell, a place of total destruction. The word that he uses is Gehenna. He doesn't use Hades. He doesn't use Hades. Because Hades is very specific. Hades refers to the grave. And its Hebrew counterpart would be uh, Sheol. 
So every time, and you'll even see in our English Bibles, and you'll see it even today, that when you go back to the Old Testament, uh, there are some places where you see in the English, at least with some translations, that it will say hell, when in fact it's not hell as we think a fiery place of torment. No, it is grave, because that's what Sheol means. It means grave, and its Greek counterpart is Hades. And so this text that we're looking at is very specific of what's being described. And as you see these two brought together, they really are companions. You really can't have one without the other. Because if we're going to talk about death, you got to talk about the grave because the place where the dead are held is in the grave. Okay? And so this is there's a natural relationship between these two. And I, I just want to capitalize on this moment. I want to show you, really uh, take you back to the Old Testament and show you the relationship between these two. There's a precedent here. In other words, if you're a first century believing Jew and, and you, you just come into faith of the Messiah Yeshua and you're radically saved, but you know your word, you grew up in the Hebrew Bible, when you would hear John's revelation and the words that are spoken here of death and Hades, it would be a very, very familiar statement to you. You would understand it properly in its context. Let me give you a couple examples. In Proverbs 5, 5, we read, and, and this is the warning of the immoral woman whose lips drip honey, whose mouth is smoother than oil. Her feet go down to what? Death and her steps lay hold of hell. But that's Sheol. That's, that's the grave. Uh, Psalm 6, 5. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In the grave, the grave, Sheol, who will give you thanks? Here's another one. Psalm 49, 14. Like sheep, they are laid in the grave, and death shall feed on them. Song of Solomon, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death, and jealousy as cruel as the grave. Let's jump into the New Testament, Revelation 20, 13. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades were delivered up the dead who were in them. And so here you see over and over again, there's this template of death, in, in a sense, being married to Hades, to the grave. And obviously, it's because of the nature of themselves, the nature of death. It goes with the grave. Amen? So, I just wanted to show you that these are a package deal. You, you, you can't have one without the other. You know, I think about, uh, it. man, it's, it's a good thing that we read in Revelation chapter 1 that Yeshua has the keys to death in Hades. And we know he took, he has those keys because of what he did for us, because of his sacrifice for us, because of his resurrection. He conquered sin and death. He took the power of death away from the evil one. You can read that in Hebrews chapter 2. And so as we look at this in Revelation 6, 8, that there's this pale green horse and the name of him who sat on it was death and Hades followed him. This just gives you a little context to the statement. We are talking about death and the grave. And so we understand when we read this, death 
is coming. According to this prophecy, death is going to be coming. And there are going to be many who meet the grave. And just how many are going to meet it? It's interesting. We're actually told as we continue in verse 8. And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth. Now you think about this number for a second because this is frightening to me. I know we have almost 8 billion, I didn't say million, 8 billion people on planet Earth. I think it's 7.8 million or billion. Do the math. We're talking about almost 2 billion people being wiped out by Thanatos. That number is chilling. I mean, you're going to be stacking bodies like cords of wood. In the last year, I've had two dreams. And I'm not here to share my dreams. I'm really not. But I just got to tell you something personally as I'm reading this. uh, It evokes a lot of emotion within me because I have had two dreams and both have terrified me uh, to no ends. And they were the same dream in essence. And what it was is I was shown a time of calamity that was so horrific. There were so many dead people. Everywhere I looked, all I could see was death. It was awful. And I tried looking away. And no matter where I looked, there there were dead. And I have never felt the presence I felt in these dreams. I have never felt before in my life. I can tell you that. And when I read this passage, I can't help but bear that feeling. It is so awful. I I don't care, believer or not, when this prophecy is fulfilled in in its total fullness, this this is going to change the world. This is going to change how people think. I mean, in a radical way, stuff like this cannot happen in the world and it not affect you. And I say this because, man, if we do not have the hope that is in Jesus, Yeshua, there is no way you have a chance. And of course, for, for you believers, you know biblically, there's no way you have a chance, period. Whether things are good or bad, you don't have a chance without Yeshua. Uh, being Lord and Savior of your life. But I'm going to tell you what is coming is going to be so horrifying. I mean, two billion people. Now, we're not told where this is going to be, whether they're isolated events, whether this happens only in a couple nations. We're not told this. But we know it's going to happen. And no matter what, you take one-fourth of the population away from the earth, everyone's going to feel it. Everyone's going to be impacted by this you know you can't oversell the weight of this statement that we're looking at here this is truly end of the world stuff well how is this going to happen we're actually told as he as we continue to kill with the sword with hunger with death and by the beasts of the earth i want you to look at this passage very, very closely. Does anything ring a bell? Does anything look familiar? Because there's something about this horse that is very, very unique. And what he does, 
And that is this. You cannot compartmentalize. You cannot look at the rider on the fourth horse whose color is chloros. You cannot look at this as mutually exclusive from the rest of the riders. This horse is a compilation, if you will, and a completion of the previous horseman. Now, why do I say that? Well, I say that because as you look at this, what is the first uh, message here that is said? It says to kill with the sword. Now, what did we learn about the second, the rider on the second horse who rides on the red horse? Well, we were told that he comes and, and takes peace from the earth and he was given a great sword. Now, why do you think he was given a, to kill? It's to kill with the sword. And so the first thing mentioned here, we've already read. This is what the second horseman does. Let's continue. The very next thing that is said, and he's going to kill with hunger. What is the last horseman? We just covered this. The third horseman it rides on the black horse. He brings famine. He brings famine and a total economic collapse. And yet, this is the very next thing mentioned. And then in order, the next thing you read, with death. Which, as we know, Thanatos. This is the term that's used. This is the name of this fourth horseman. And so, as we look at what's being described here, this fourth horseman is a compilation, a totality of the horsemen all together, uh, a fulfillment, as it were. And then there is also one other thing added uh, in this, and that is the beasts of the earth. Now, there's something else about this passage that is important to point out, in addition to the fact that uh, this particular rider is really a compilation of the totality of the horsemen. And that is the fact that all these things that we see on the screen in, in verse 8, that he kills with the sword, with hunger, with death, with the beasts of the earth. Do you know that this is the precedent for these instruments of death, for this judgment, exist in the prophets? In other words, what I'm trying to say is these are kind of God's go-to for bringing forth judgment. And this is important to identify so that you understand the context of what is happening with these four horsemen. It is absolutely critical that you understand God is angry and he's getting serious with the world. And I want to give you some examples because we're going to learn some interesting things by doing this. But I want to take you to the prophet Ezekiel. And in chapter 5, we read the following. So I, sent, I will send against you famine and wild beasts. And I will bereave you, pestilence and blood shall pass through you, and I will bring the sword against you. I, the Lord, have spoken. Now, you look at this. We have all the elements that we covered in uh, verse 8 in Revelation chapter 6. All these elements are here. And in Ezekiel, what is God doing? He's warning his people... I'm coming. I'm coming in heavy. I am bringing judgment. You'll know. You'll know when I'm there. 
And so we, we, we see God getting very, very serious. Now, there is one thing to note here. Uh, you know, all these things we can connect. Uh, the sword, the sword uh, from Revelation and Ezekiel. We have hunger and we have famine. Uh, going from Revelation to Ezekiel, you have the beast of the earth. You have them lining up. And I'm color coding these just to help you connect these. But there's one in specific I want you to connect. And that is this. The pestilence and the death. Uh, again, looking at Thanatos. To show you that we are virtually looking at an identical picture here. Whether I'm looking at Ezekiel 5 or Revelation 6. Now, to understand this, it's, it's interesting that thanatos in the greek this is this is the greek term when the hebrew bible is translated into greek known as the septuagint the septuagint for the word pestilence this is important the word pestilence which is dever in the hebrew many times over 30 times the greek word used to translate dever in the hebrew pestilence is Thanatos. And so as we quite literally look, let me go back here, as we look at all these, they're identical in a sense. And this gives you an idea of the context of what we're experiencing. Context is everything, at least it, it is for me. Context is so critical that we understand the context of Revelation 6. It, help us, it helps us understand, well, there's already been a precedent set before us. And actually, not just one times, but many times, as you go to the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh. Um, let me jump ahead here. Yeah. Continuing on in Ezekiel 14, 13. Son of man, when a land sins against me by persistent unfaithfulness, I will stretch out my hand against it. Now we need to hear these words carefully because you look out your front window, what do we see? We see a nation that is sinning against God by persistent unfaithfulness. We see a nation that has all out rejected the living God, that has rejected righteousness, that has rejected holiness, that has rejected morality, that has rejected good, wholesome family values. They're completely intolerant towards this Instead of protecting unborn children, we facilitate and protect the killing of these unborn children. This is what is happening right now. We're engaging in sexual immorality, such perversion that boggles the mind that you struggle to think how could even a human being be so depraved, uh, deplorable to go to that level to go to the level to even conceive the kind of immorality that is running amok these days. It is absolutely demonic. The disdain for power and authority, the disdain for law is unreal in this nation. This is a time where we need to hear these words when a land sins against me, this is any kingdom, any nation, that they habitually go and sin, he's going to stretch out his hand against it. What does it look like when the Lord stretch out, stretches out his hands? Well, let's check it out. I will cut off its supply of bread and send famine on it. 
and cut off man and beast from it. See, does this sound familiar? Because these are God's go-to. These are his instruments of judgment. These are things you know when God gets serious, when he brings these things out, when nations start to experience these things. He is not plain. This is when people start to die. In verse 14, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they would deliver only themselves by their righteousness, says the Lord God. You know, this is the bar, and I, and I, I mentioned this in my Hebrew series, but Daniel, Noah, and Job, this is what it's going to take to get into the kingdom of God. This is what it's going to take to merit the favor of the living God. It's the bar. This is, this is where we need to elevate to. This is the kind of dedication, the commitment, the faith that we need to have, the perseverance, the prayer life. This is what we need to have. We need to look like these men. We're living in the generation that's being spoken of in Ezekiel 14. We are living in a nation that has God's hand stretched out against it. And, and obviously, much of the world, we're coming to this point. We're coming to the end of the age. 14.21, we read this, For thus says the Lord God, How much more it shall be when I send, oh, look at this, my four judgments on Yerushalayim, the sword, the famine, wild beasts, and pestilence, to cut off man and beast from it. Again, these are the very things that we see the rider on the, the, the on the pale green horse coming being described in Revelation 6:8 every single one of these and it is explicitly in the context of God is bringing forth judgment this is as serious as it gets and so you know, when God gets serious it's time for us to get serious and start considering repentance. You know, you, you look at these four judgments. It's interesting because in the Bible, four is very significant in regard to God moving in judgment. You can read Zechariah. You can read about these four horns in, in the opening of Zechariah chapter 1. Uh, or these four horns. He brings four horns against to literally scatter the people of God. And you can read about in Jeremiah 15. talks about four forms of destruction. And here you see in Ezekiel four severe judgments. We see it in Revelation. See, God has, uh, you know, a modus operandi, shall we say. He's got a mode of operation that he likes. When he wants to facilitate judgment, there are specific arrows in his quiver that he sends forth, whether it's sword, whether it's famine, whether it's pestilence. He brings these things to the table. I want to take you, I want to build on this, and I want to take you to the 14th chapter of Jeremiah. And this is what we read, verse 11. Then the Lord said to me, do not pray for this people for their good. Now, I'm taking you here because you got to understand that God is getting serious with Yerushalayim at this point. He's getting serious with his own people. He's going to bring judgment and Jeremiah the prophet has been is, is being sent out to speak to them. But for me, 
this is one of the more terrifying statements in the Old Testament where Jeremiah is instructed, here's this prophet of God, and what does God do? He sends his prophets to go speak to his people to turn them to repent. But God has instructed Jeremiah, don't pray for these people because I'm not going to hear. I am not going to hear it. Why is God not going to hear his prayers? This is a righteous man of God. He's doing a good thing. He cares about the well-being of others. The answer to that, and I'm not going to go through all the all the different passages in Jeremiah where I could support this, but the answer is, is because they didn't know how to blush. The answer is, is that they wouldn't repent. And so as God's giving them warnings, he's sending his prophets, telling them, hey, you got to come back kind of trying to jog their memory that, you know what, you're supposed to serve me, we're in covenant. As they have forgotten God, they are actually drifting further and further into rebellion. And when people drift further and further in rebellion, that's when God steps back and says, I'm done. You are rebellious people. The only thing left is judgment. The only thing left, the only thing you're going to hear is my terrifying hand. And this kills me because I look at this country right now and we are acting exactly like the very people Jeremiah dealt with in his days. And I see God's heart for that. Now God's heart is, he's not willing that any should perish. We know this. He's, his heart is that all should come to the knowledge of the truth that they might be saved. But there comes a point where the pin is pulled. And we, we can even look at other New Testament passages to support this, such as uh, the, the churches mentioned in the book of Revelation, where the Lord warns them, hey, if you don't turn and repent, I will come and kill your children. I will take you out. There's a timing. There's timing. God is long-suffering. But there comes to a point and says, I'm done. I'm done with this. And the only thing left is justice. The only thing left is judgment. Continuing on, verse 12. When they fast, I will not hear their cry. And when they offer burnt offering and grain offering, I will not accept them. But I will consume them, oh, by the sword, by the famine, and by the pestilence. Over and over again, these are the familiar instruments of death, God's familiar instruments of judgment. And yet again, I, I tell you, you look at the, the context of what's going on in Jeremiah's days, and it is terrifying because it's the same stiff-necked, obstinate, rebellious people that we see today. This nation, what we see in this nation. Verse 13 then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, the prophets say to them, You shall not see the sword, nor shall you have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. In other words, what you have here is the Lord's going out. He's warning them. Calamity is coming. And then you have the false prophets running around saying, No, it's not. No, 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 no. You, you are going to have peace. Everything is going to be okay. Look around you. This is what is happening right now. It is happening on multiple levels. It's absolutely mind-blowing what we see happening. I mean, you have pastors taking the pulpit right now telling their congregants, 
that you're going to be raptured out of here, congregants. You're not going to face any of this tribulation. You're not going to see any calamity. You're not going to have to go through any of this. No, don't worry about it. You will have peace. You will have peace. It's okay. Exactly what the false prophets were doing in Jeremiah's day. Absolutely demonic. You know, the, the, the thing about this is, is that when God stretches out his hand, when God decides to get serious, because the nation and even the world has reached a point of corruption that is so vile, he's got to move. When he does that, do you know what the devil does? He moves his minions out as quickly as possible. His false teachers, his false prophets to disrupt, to deceive so that they do not turn back. See, because this is what we're told. And Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, he said, godly sorrow produces repentance and it leads to salvation. It's not to be regretted. Godly sorrow is not to be regretted. But these false prophets and false teachers are, are, are spiritual anesthesiologists coming out to kill and deaden the pain of godly sorrow. And instead of telling the people, hell is on its way. The Lord is stretching out his hands. We're living in the end times. It's time to get serious. It's time to repent. No, instead of saying that, they're saying, oh, you don't have to keep the commandments of God. They're saying, oh, you don't have to worry. They're saying, hey, you know what? If you said a prayer one time, you're fine. It's okay. And then retreat and have a pillow fight. They're telling him they're going to have peace. They're telling him they can live like hell and inherit heaven. They're telling him if, 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 you, if you break these commandments, you will surely not die. This is what is going on. We are drowning in the midst of false prophets. Everything you would expect to see. When God goes to move out his hand, we are seen right now. It, 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 it's, it's really an, an incredible thing. Moving on to verse 14, we read this. And the Lord said to me, the prophets prophesy lies in my name. I have not sent them, commanded them, nor spoken to them. They have prophesied to you a false vision, divination, a worthless thing, and a deceit of their own heart. And I just think of... What Paul warns us on multiple occasions, he warns us that uh, in Acts 20, that the false prophets, the false teachers will not spare the flock. They're not going to spare the flock. They're going to destroy it. And then and in 2 Timothy, that uh, evil men and imposters will go worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Yeshua warns us false prophets are going to come in sheep's clothing. And Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 11, they're going to come as ministers of righteousness. This is what they're going to do. Satan presents himself as an angel of light. We, I think of 2 Peter chapter 2, that even as there were false prophets among the people, there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. In other words, tell you it's okay. There's peace. Don't worry about these things that are going on. It's okay to embrace the things of the world. You don't have to worry about this sin or that sin. You're fine. You're under grace. Don't worry about it. You can sleep at night. No, you don't have to stop looking at pornography. Everyone doesn't. No, you don't have to forgive people. You don't have to get that bitterness out of your heart because the Lord's forgiven them so that you don't have to. I mean, the, the, the insanity of some of the things that you hear today is absolutely it's ludicrous. But this is what is happening. This is exactly what you would expect in this environment where 
The world is given over to complete lawlessness. And God is stretching out his hand. He's moving against it. This is exactly, this is the environment, the cauldron, if you will, to send out the, all the false prophets and the false teachers. You know, it's interesting. And, and you check me out on this. You know, don't take my word for it. But historically speaking, every time God comes in, and brings calamity and judgment on his people, you will notice there was an environment of false prophets wreaking havoc. And, and let me give you some tangible examples. 586 BC, Babylon comes in, King Nebuchadnezzar lays waste. Now, it began long before that. Uh, it, was, it was like a 10-year siege of Babylon coming again. But its crescendo was 586, where the temple fell, it was burned, and all of this stuff. But but here's the thing. That was the time. You see, God sends out Jeremiah, this true prophet, to tell him, hey, this is the time of repentance. And what do we know? I mean, from the book of Jeremiah, we know for a fact false prophets went out. And the people were listening to the false prophets and convincing them. But it's important for you to understand, they didn't go around identifying as false prophets. Oh, hey, oh, Jerusalem, oh, oh, Jewish people, listen to us, the false prophet. No, no. They presented themselves as people of God, men of God, who walked with God. And it was through their counsel and telling the people, settle down, you're going to have peace. It's okay. No harm is going to come to you. It was through their counsel that they fell. Fast forward just a bit. And then you come to the second century BC, Antiochus Epiphanes. The spirit of Antichrist rolled into Jerusalem. It was awful. The Seleucid Empire uh, casting down the Torah, forbidding the, to the observance of Sabbath. All of these things demanding that the Jewish people leave their God and worship uh, Zeus, if you will. And during this time, the first thing you read in the Apocrypha, in the book of Maccabees, which records the story, is the fact that many false prophets went out and misled many of the Jewish people. Getting them to compromise. Getting them to give in to the request of this new government. This government imposing its authority over them, if you will. Now, these things are instrumental when you look at what's going on in this country right now. And I'll piggyback on that in, in, in some of the coming videos. But let me, let me fast forward to Rome, uh, or not to Rome, but to Jerusalem, uh, when it was under Roman control in 70 AD. What happened? The, the temple's destroyed. What do we know? Prior to that ever happening, false prophets went out en masse. Josephus records all these amazing signs, but then all these men, respectable men that they came out, said, oh, these, aren't, these don't portend evil. These don't portend destruction. No, no, it's okay. Everybody settle down. Nothing to see here. These are good signs that God is with us. These are good signs. And in other words, God supports us. He supports us where we're at. When he didn't, they were rejecting him. Fast forward past that. Go to 2nd century A.D. 
to the time of Bar Kokhba, who was identified and hailed as the Jewish Messiah. There were prominent rabbis like Rabbi Akiva that came out and said, yes, he's the Messiah. We need to follow him. God is going to give us victory. Yes, Bar Kokhba, build the temple, do all these things. God is with us. The false prophets went out, the people listened to them, and it was one of the greatest, most horrific slaughters in Jewish history. Absolutely awful. I think it's almost estimated 600,000, almost 600,000 died. This is where we're at today. Beware of the false prophets. Beware of the false teachers. Beware of false brethren that are going to come in. This is not the time to cater to itching ears. This is not the time to give in to the dictates of your own heart. This is not the time to accept the things that your flesh wants to hear. It's not the time for it. It's the time to listen to what God has to say, what the Holy Spirit is impressing upon your heart, to give in to repentance, to give in to faith, to build your faith by the reading of the Word. Faith comes by hearing, hearing the Word of God. It's time for fasting. Fasting is so powerful, coupled with prayer. I don't know why anyone would fast without praying. That makes no sense. We can pray without fasting, but when you fast, be diligent to pray. There's power in that. This is where we need to be today. Moving on to verse 15. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who prophesy in my name, whom I did not send, and who say sword and famine shall not be in the land. By sword and famine, those prophets shall be consumed. I'm telling you right now, we are on the brink. All these false prophets, all these pastors, all these shepherds who have gone out giving a false hope, a false gospel, false peace. Their days are numbered. Look out your front window. Look at what is happening. God is getting serious. Their days are numbered. I pity them. I pity those that are going to die in their sin without repenting. You do not want to be under their teaching. You don't want to be under their delusion. You don't want to be under that cloak of sin. You want to be in a place of repentance. You want to surround yourself by God-fearing men and women. This is what you want to do uh, at this time. You know, it's interesting, you know, looking at Jeremiah here, uh, before I get into the last passage here in Ezekiel, one thing I want to mention, when you read the book of Jeremiah, as you open up in chapter 1, what is said there is that he is a prophet to the nations. Jeremiah is literally this Navi Lagoyim. He's a prophet to the nations. And I mention that because when you read the book of Jeremiah and how God moves, and as you can see, his instruments of death and how he brings in judgment is exactly what's being described in Revelation 6. You need to understand that this is a book, among all the books in the Bible, it's extremely relevant, but especially passages like we read in Jeremiah. And there's numerous passages that I'm not covering today that are really powerful, insightful that equip you for where we're at today. Now, that being said, let's jump to Ezekiel. I want to close with the following. 
Ezekiel 33, verse 1, And again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, speak to the children of your people, and say to them, When I bring the sword upon a land, and the people of the land take a man from their territory, and make them make him their watchman, when he sees the sword coming upon the land, if he blows the trumpet and warns the people, then whoever hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning, if the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be on his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet, but he did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But he who takes warning shall save his life. You get that? But if the watchman sees the sword coming, and he does not blow the trumpet, and the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes away, takes any person from among them, he is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. I close in this passage because I absolutely, clearly understand what we are seeing today. And what we're going to see coming, I've seen this for more than a decade. I've preached on this. And as a watchman, and that's, that's all I am, I'm a watchman, I'm a simple servant, a watchman on the wall, blowing the trumpet. I encourage you to be watchmen on the wall and to start sharing the truth of Jesus Yeshua to start impressing the urgency of the gospel that it is not okay to wait for tomorrow because you may not have tomorrow. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the day of rebellion. There is an urgency to the gospel. Now is the time. Yeshua says in Revelation at the, at the end of the, the book, he says, behold, I am coming quickly. I mean, we need to take heed to that warning. We need to understand as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It has to be now. We have to make that decision today. And so I just encourage you to be watchmen on the wall. Speak the truth. Warn the people of what is coming. No, it's not going to be popular. And, oh, it sounds negative. Yeah, that's, that's basically exactly what the Jewish people said of Jeremiah. They didn't like what he had to say. They felt like you're speaking against us. That it, it didn't sound very pro-grace. It didn't sound very pro-Israel. It didn't sound very pro-temple and, and the people as a whole. It didn't sound anything to the likes of what they wanted to hear. But that was the message of hope. That was the message of truth. That was the message of salvation. You know, again, I tell you, we are living in a generation where truth is rare than fine gold. And the Antichrist is casting truth to the ground right now. It's the time where you, you fight back. You cling to the truth. You proclaim it. You don't shy away from it. And tell everyone that you meet that Yeshua is Lord. And he is coming. And he is angry. He is angry. This is why in Revelation 6, if you were to continue past these seals that we're covering, that have been opened, as you get in to the end of 6, it talks about the wrath of the Lamb. See, Yeshua's first coming is very, very different than his second coming. His second coming is going to be terrifying for the unbeliever, for the world. His first coming was a blessing. He came and healed. He came and saved. 
He came and redeemed. He forgave sins. He's not doing that in his second coming. And understand something about the urgency of this. You're not going to have a second chance. You, you don't. This goes back to you, you need to make this commitment today because you're not going to have a second chance to do this. If something happens to you on the way home or as you go uh, wherever you're going to work or somebody shoots you, which is becoming uh, a real thing today, uh, if you die of some unknown disease and you go quickly, listen, there's not a second chance for you. This is your chance right now. And so you need to take heed to the warning and you need to get serious and get on your knees and get right with the Lord. And then when death comes, it will not hold you. 